0: to the Renegade Aviator Radio Show with David Costa.
1: Mom, oh, Mo, no. update the wind 2 toes, five. We are on the airfield and
0: airspace. You are cleared for takeoff. Have a good one. Thanks, Mo. Cleared for takeoff.
1: Check your parker brake off. Check your trim set. Check your nozzle steering on. maneuver. it. Costa Renegade Aviator, boy, I've got a treat for you today. Before there were unmanned drone pilots that sit safely on the ground, earning combat pay, there was a group of men that risked a lot, that broke barriers, literally sound barriers and otherwise. You know, normally I interview air show pilots, But there are other superstars in aviation, superstars who deserve a lot more credit than guys like me that fly carnival acts at air shows. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce Frank Murray, call sign Dutch 20. And Frank flew the A-12, and he's going to tell us what the A-12 was and flew for things like Project Oxcart and flew for projects like Black Shield. Cool stuff. Frank, welcome to the Renegade Aviator radio show. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Frank, you know, you just mentioned something. I want our audience to hear it. You're part of a very special group. Kind of explain a little bit about what that special group is. Okay. Project
0: OXCART was a developmental phase putting together the world's fastest airplane to be used in the reconnaissance role. It was sponsored by CIA, funded by them in the development years. Later on, the Air Force took an interest in it and developed their own similar airplane based on the A-12 airplane, and it was known as the SR-71. Sometimes I refer to that as the family model. That's a joke, really, because it's a two-seat airplane, and the A-12 was a one-seat airplane, just one guy. And the mission of the airplanes is very similar aerial reconnaissance, with uh, the SR carrying multiple cameras and sensors, the A-12 carrying one very large camera, very high resolution, was our our claim to fame on the A-12. Anyway, there was only six pilots on Oxcart project. Once the project got underway and the natural attrition, people quit. We lost a couple in crashes and things. And we got down to six guys that flew the operational mission. Today, there are three pilots remaining, myself, Ken Collins, and Dennis Sullivan, and we live in different parts of the country, but those are the only three remaining A-12 jocks out there. So it's a very small fraternity in the beginning, and it got smaller due to our own attrition within the gang. So that's the background of the pilot pool. Not many of us ever, okay?
1: Yeah, I think today a lot of people are getting more and more used to these drone aircraft flying and uh, really don't understand what went on and even what these black aircraft programs were that you were involved with. You were an Area 51 guy. You were a guy flying really breaking barriers. This project, Oxcart and Black Shield, I guess two different programs, of course. You know, Could you tell us a little bit about kind of what yeah, that process I can, I was? Can
0: br- I can bring you up to speed on that oxcart was the name of the project from the developmental days on from first design on it was called project oxcart oxcart means nothing it's just a code name that came out of some who knows where but anyway that was the developmental program to get the airplane built tested and flown and be ready for operational overflight missions which was uh, Somewhat of a replacement, if you will, for the U-2 that Gary Powers was flying when he was shot down over Mother Russia. We came up, the country came up with a design that should have foiled anybody getting after us like they did with their missiles. So Oxcart was the development phase of the A-12 airplane. Black Shield was the operational phase overseas when we were finally released to use the airplane for what it was built. We flew over to Kadena, which is a a base on Okinawa, Japan, and we operated in the Orient out of there over flying North Vietnam, North Korea, the China coast, Laos, and places like that. The customer for our product over there, of course, was the military, the Air Force, and the Army of our forces uh, that needed uh, definition as to where their targets were better than they could go look at them with their normal reconnaissance airplanes, which would not have had much of a chance. They'd been shot down every day. But they couldn't get at us because we flew above 80,000 feet, and we were also going over Mach 3. We normally went across targets at about 3.2 Mach number, which is about 21, 2,200 miles an hour, statute miles an hour, which is, if anybody tells you, it's over 3,000 feet per second, which is faster than most rifle bullets come out of the barrel. So it's pretty hard to shoot down a bullet. So <laughs> we, we could steal a line from Superman and say faster than a speeding bullet. But the beauty of the A-12 was it would fly about an hour and 15 minutes at speed. It didn't just come out the barrel and slow down like a bullet. This thing was a a marvelous creature of a machine. A wonderful thing, difficult to fly at times, but it was a super performer. And there was nothing out there that could touch it. We flew up to 90,000 feet and over 3.3, 3.3, Mach on occasion. But our normal mission cruise speed was 3.2, which was the design speed of the airplane. It was made from the ground up to run at that speed. That was its most efficient speed, or if you will, in simple terms, that you got the best miles per gallon right there. So anything else on acceleration was a waste of fuel to get there. But once you got there and got the thing working by design, 3.2 was the most efficient speed to be at. So that's where we cruised. We went all over the place at 3.2, only slowing down to refuel on the tanker or to go back to the base and land. So that's it for a nutshell. Uh, Oxcart was the development phase. Black Shield was the name given to the operational phase over
1: These aircraft at the time, the average American at the time, had no idea these aircraft existed. Is that true?
0: That's true. They were built in Burbank and hauled up in large boxes to Area 51 and put back together. They were completely assembled in Burbank at the Skunk Works, Lockheed Skunk Works, and they were hauled up in crates sort of with wheels on them. And when they got there, they had to reassemble the thing back to flying condition and test it for leaks and engine runs and, and all of that. Lockheed did most of the testing of the airplane. The project pilots, like myself, did a lot of the follow-on testing where Lockheed would demonstrate one step out to a certain speed, and we were right behind them. So we would continue and with a number of sorties out there at that speed to make sure that it worked right. So we were in the test crew, but not the factory test pilots. We were ex Air Force pilots hired by CIA under contract to fly this thing.
1: Outstanding. Outstanding. Frank Murray, ladies and gentlemen, we're coming up to our first break. Uh, we're going to take a break here and come on back. And, Frank, what I'd like to start the next segment with is how does a guy get picked to fly CIA airplanes? Man, that's kind of strange and kind of cool and kind of black ops. We love that stuff. This is Dave Costa, Renegade Aviator. We'll be right back. This show is part one of a two-part series. And I stand before each one of you listening today in awe and in reverence, to those of you who have served in secret, out of the public view. Those who serve without fanfare, without that pat on the back every day that so many lesser people demand. The people then and now who simply do their job, a demanding job, to the best of their abilities. Who decide to understand the big picture and who, despite the dangers, despite their fear and feelings or obstacles, press the throttles forward and do what others will not. 888-366-5256. David Costa, Renegade Aviator.
0: the host of the Renegade Aviator Radio Show, David Costa.
1: All right, ladies and gentlemen, Dave Costa, Renegade Aviator, Segment 2 with Mr. Frank Murray. Dutch 20 is his call sign and A-12 pilot, that for the uninitiated is the SR-71. And Frank, you know, for what you can tell us a little bit about your background and how does a pilot, you know, here you go, you get selected, you left the uh, military and went CIA, which is pretty interesting, I think. I don't think a lot of people realize that these aircraft were flown by the CIA instead of uh, regular Air Force pilots. Yeah,
0: well, let me make one correction. The A-12 is not an SR-71. The SR-71 is a two-seat airplane of similar looks and made by the same company, but it's a two-seat airplane operated by the Air Force, by the Strategic Air Command during its active years. The A-12 was a a one-seat airplane operated by the CIA. They built and paid for the damn development of the thing. So... Anyway, I had to correct that because uh, a lot of people think the SR and the A-12 are the same thing. They're not. They're two different programs. We had nothing to do with the SR operation. The only thing we shared with them was the tanker fleet. We used the same KC-135s for air refueling, you know, mid-air refueling. Sure. That was it. That was the only crossover point. We never briefed to those guys or met them or anything else. I've met them in years past. Now that both programs are dead, you know, I just went to the SR Reunion
1: in Reno. That had to be to fly that aircraft, single pilot. It that had to busy. Require, <laughs> I can imagine. Well, I actually can't imagine. I don't think people do because today we're used to very great navigational systems, GPS, glass cockpits. Uh, you didn't have any of that stuff back then or at least stuff you can't talk about. But it had to be a heavy, heavy workload aircraft. It was
0: a busy airplane, I'll put it that way. The busiest part of the thing probably was the management of the propulsion system. And the propulsion system is not just the engine, it's the complete working inlet. That airplane has a working inlet. It's not just a hole to let air go down through the engine. It has a moving spike, bypass doors, all kinds of controls are required to control the airflow into what ultimately becomes sort of a, a turbo ramjet. At Cruise, it's a turbo ramjet by some people's measures. I never quite called it that, but I, I don't think I worried about it. I was just interested in flying it. But to say it was a busy airplane is an understatement. The SAC airplane had two guys. The back seater ran the nav, the jamming system, He had a bunch of it back there, the complete nav, and the ECM was all part of his job in the back seat. The pilot was charged mainly with the flying of the airplane. In the A-12, the one guy did it all. We only had one guy by design. There was no intention to make it a two-seat airplane, which would have been contrary to the needs or the desires of the CIA. They don't like casts and crews, you know. They like one-man operations. And that's what I did. I was a fighter pilot by background and training in the Air Force. I'd been flying fighters for 15 years when they inducted me into flying the A-12. And that was a thrill, which I accepted, of course, willingly. And it was a great privilege. Out of all the thousands they interviewed to get that job, we ended up with six guys flying the mission. So they're alone, you know, and you can't say anything about it when you're doing it. When I retired from the Air Force in 77, the Air Force had no official record that I'd ever got out and flown for the CIA. It was all covered up somehow or other. And when it was all over, I went back into the Air Force and continued my Air Force career flying Air Force fighters, went to Vietnam flying the slowest airplane in the theater, the A-1 Sky Raider, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And it was a great step backwards in speed and performance. But the mission was hot, and I love that. And, you know, that's the kind of thing I go for. If you knew me personally, you know that that's the sort of thing that I go for.
1: That's really amazing to go backwards and forwards like you did and then yeah. end up in combat with a piston airplane in Vietnam. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> well, you know, I was the
0: only A-12 jock to get to do that. And I got to do it because my friends, when I got back in the Air Force, they were bragging about what they did when they were over in Nam. And and several of them that I was stationed with in, down in Florida said, you got to try the A-1 mission. It was mostly a search and rescue mission. We were the guns, you know, for the Jolly Green rescue helicopter. And they said that that was a mission you'd really get your teeth into and you'd love it. And it was hairy, I'll tell you that. It, nothing easy about that mission, easy either. No. But I thoroughly enjoyed it. I could do anything with airplanes. I thought I was bulletproof. <laughs> now that I'm <laughs> 88 years old, I know I'm not, but I have fond memories.
1: Of- and I can hear it in your voice. And it's, you know, what words of wisdom do you have to this next generation of aviators that uh, may do less and less hand flying of aircraft you know, I think it's easy to say, well, this next generation coming up is going to have it easier or better. I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts? You've, you've got a different perspective.
0: Well, I never got to fly the modern fighters of today, like the 22 and the 35, you know, or the F-18 and the Navy. I never flew those. The hottest airplane I flew when I was in the Air Force was probably the 101, the Voodoo. And I flew that almost 3,000 hours in the voodoo. So that's my high-time bird. And I liked that. And in its day, I started flying that thing in 57. And I stayed in it until I retired in 77. So except for a short break of a year in Vietnam of flying the SPAD, the A1, we called it the SPAD. It was so damn slow and old, but it was wonderful. But anyway, the fastest I'd been before was about 1.8 Mach number. And then I moved into the A-12, and it climbs it over Mach 3. So, you know, there was a big, hairy change in, in perspective, but it was all thrilling. And, you know, I would do it all again. Given half a chance, I'd be there again. I really enjoyed it. I started in boot camp in Lackland in 1948 when I first joined the Air Force, right out of high school. I went in the Air Force when I was 17, and I didn't plan to stay. I thought I was in for a three-year hitch, and I spent almost 30 years. But I got to doing things that were more interesting than anything I could have ever done getting out. So I stayed in where the fun was, (laughs) and and I made a career of that. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it.
1: I would be remiss on all this if I didn't say thank you. Thank you, Frank Murray. Thank you for your service, obviously. Thank you for your perspective, for your humor and humility in the face of what was a challenge. And thanks for showing us the lesson that each of us must choose our actions in life so that we can look back at our lives as fun and as a job well done. 888-366-5256. David Costa, Renegade Aviator. We'll be right back. Questions, comments, suggestions, or recommendations?
0: Call the Renegade Aviator at 888-366-5256 anytime and leave us a message.
1: Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. The glory days of an aviator is coming to an end. Change is inevitable, of course. But I think nobody can dispute that we are talking to one of the last great aviators, Mr. Frank Murray. We are entering an age where the pilot is secondary to the automation on the aircraft. The missions that Frank flew in the A-12, the black jet, are now done with satellites, drones, and operators in safety getting combat pay. No offense, guys and gals, but it's true. Listen up. What are your thoughts now with this new stuff, especially in the mission with the A-12 flow?
0: If I had to say it to a young fighter pilot, which they're having a heck of a time retaining in the Air Force nowadays because of deployments overseas, frequent frequent family separation, not enough flying time. I understand they're very restricted on how many sorties they get per month or week or Year and also the oncoming uh, automation of airplanes. It won't be long. The fighters are going to be unmanned things. And if I was a fighter pilot, I think I'd be looking for a new job too. Because mm. it doesn't look like you're going to do what I did. I got to spend 25 years in the cockpit. You know, I was happy and eager to do that. That's exactly what I wanted to do. That's why I stayed in the Air Force. I wouldn't have stayed if I'd have been a ground pounder or something because, you know, I could do that and make a lot more money doing something else. But I stayed because of my great interest in aviation. It was a family condition, if you will. My big brother was a professional aviator, combat aviator, airline pilot, all of the above. And I wanted to follow in his steps, and I did. And I got to fly a lot faster than he ever got. I used to laughingly tell him, that I've got more time on the top of a loop than you do, Bill, <laughs> 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 because he flew transports that never got on their back, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I used to give him the rag about stuff like that, but he knew that we were a different crew. But my brother, Bill, was my mentor in aviation. I've got to say that he taught me to fly before I ever went to pilot training in the Air Force. I was already at home flying airplanes because my brother taught me. And stuff like that rubs off and makes you want to stay in the game, especially if you enjoy it as much as I did. And I thoroughly enjoyed flying. Uh, obviously, if I did twenty-five years at it, six thousand hours in military airplanes, and, and I never got hurt. You that's, know, I that, came out of that thing with my skin still on. That's so, that is you know, amazing. Yeah, it is. I had one bailout, and that's it. And, <laughs> that's and, it. <laughs> and that was that was in nineteen fifty-seven when I was just a kid. <laughs> I was three years into my fighter career, and I had an airplane that lost all hydraulic systems. And, of course, then the stick becomes a parking meter. You know, you can't fly something, a modern airplane, without hydraulics because everything is hydraulic-powered. So I stepped out of that one. I ejected out of it and got a free parachute ride. Uh, but, man. but that only one time, and that was in 57. That's a long time ago.
1: I kind of like I how you said remembered. it
0: I, I remember landing in a, the only tree, and within a thousand miles, I thought was a mesquite tree, and a Texas mesquite tree has got thorns on it that look like sword. And I came down right into that tree with all of those stickery things on it, scratched the heck out of me, tore up my flying suit, and you know I could have picked anywhere in the county and not run into a tree. But I Mm -hmm. zeroed in on one from 12,000 feet and zing, right into the darn thing. Mm It's the story of my life. But anyway, I came out of that okay. I recovered and went on and uh, never had another thrill like that. That was enough parachute ride for me. Thank you. Exactly.
1: Well, you know, and a lot of people would just quit right there and say, well, that's it. I'm done, you know. Uh, But uh, that was uh, at the beginning of your career and then to go through so many iterations. Have you ever spoken with people who have actually accomplished great things? Do you wanna know a secret on how to be able to sort through the BSers from the real deals? You just heard it. Humility in recognition of others and calmness in reflection, often with humor. No need to put others down to make themselves look better and the ability to provide simple explanations simplicity in the recollection my purpose here is not to preach and not to focus on my stories but to bring you people that need little from me in order to provide you with a valuable experience listen to all my shows on soundcloud at renegade aviator this is dave costa Once I get here he
0: is the host of the Renegade Aviator Radio Show david costa
1: david costa the renegade aviator 888 remember this is part one of a two-part series with frank murray find us on soundcloud.com search renegade av the number 8r or call Back to my interview with the guy who flew the fastest airplane at the time, and probably still is, without needing the help of a computer. That is an aviator. Here we go. You know, with the A-12, as you're flying that different kind of a mission, you're not in a combat role at that point, but you're collecting information. There still is a huge risk factor, but the risk has got to be from the environment you're operating in. It's probably untouchable.
0: We lost people with that airplane because it was unrewarding if you just happened to be unlucky enough to end up in one of its strange syndromes. Like I said... In the A-12, as far as I was concerned, the hardest thing to do with that airplane was to manage the propulsion system. It was mainly managing the inlet control system, which controlled the airflow through the engine. That was a complex system, and we didn't have the digital computer that was put into the SR-71 later on. So we used to suffer duck gun starts and stuff like that, which are complete loss of power on an engine. And you've got to recover it and get it going again. So it's a busy business in that airplane. And the day I was there, we used to say the computer that ran our inlet had wooden gears in it. It was so old. (laughs) It, (laughs) It was sort of an analog calculator. It wasn't a real true computer. It had no anticipation modes or anything like that. So it was a busy airplane in that the pilot got a lot of manipulation of strike position bypass door position, and, you know, along with managing the engine temperatures, fuel flow, and those other things that are basic to a, a jet engine. But it kept you busy. If you got good at it, skilled, I will say. The thing performed beautifully. I just loved to fly that thing. When it got to whistling and you got out to speed... You got out the 3-2 or so, you're covering ground at a half a mile a second. If you get lost in that thing, you can really get lost in a hurry. You can be in another country or another county real easy. But for the most part, I stayed on top of it. I managed. I never had a serious problem with the airplane. And I flew the last flight of the A-12 when I brought it back from overseas. And I took it to storage at Palmdale. I flew it back to 51 initially so they could download the sensitive equipment, you know, the jammers and stuff like that. They want to take all that out before they put it in storage. And then I flew it to storage at Palmdale where they had all the A-12s wrestled up in a hangar. And that was a sad ending to a wonderful program that was shot down, too, by a political decision that took away the fastest and best airplane we had at the time. A decision made by Lyndon Johnson on ill advice from his advisors. I hated the fact that it went was put down. I lost the best flying job I had at the moment, but I did get to fly the last flight. And uh, that's a commemoration it was still... Looked back on, and I was lucky enough to just be standing around. The guy that brought her back from overseas took it to storage and said goodbye. And it is an interesting note. For the first time in the history of that program, the families, wives, and children were allowed to go out to Palmdale to see me fly around with it and land it and bring it right up in front of them and shut it off. First time uh, they ever saw the airplane. First time for the family and kids. And the other pilots, of course, were with the families. That was a concession made by CIA but that I still think was one of the smartest moves they ever did for happiness amongst our little crowd. We really love that.
1: I can just imagine the uh, looks on the family's face. I mean, not oh, knowing- yeah,
0: Well, here, this <laughs> great big black thing comes up. It's over 100 feet long, you know. And it's got one little skinny guy up in the front. <laughs> One driver, that was it. Oh, man. It was a wonderful airplane. It's a, a better performer than the SR in that it's 20,000 pounds lighter, 20,000 pounds. You've got to generate 20,000 pounds more lift to just get that thing to the same altitude. And along the generating lift, if you're a student of the process at all, as you increase more lift, you increase the drag caused by lift, you know, and there is a coefficient of measurement. The drag then equates to burning more fuel. The SR had 12,000 pounds more fuel on board to go about the same range. So all of those things added to the weight penalty. The SR was carrying a lot more. The A-12 flew better because it was more flexible, lighter with basically the same wing and engines. I never did fly the SR. I've sat in it and looked at it, but I never did fly it.
1: Okay, another segment done, but we're coming back for one more segment. But I can't stop thinking about the discipline it took to keep a secret. And then the overwhelming pride after so many years to show those you love so much something as amazing as that black jet, the A-12. Then just as you reached the pinnacle of all those emotions, that pride, the accolades of your family, you look back and you realize that you'll never Never do this again. This is it. And we all have similar moments in life where we realize we may not have been grateful enough in the present. Look back at your life. Fill your life with good things that you can look back on. David Costa, Renegade Aviator.
0: Do you mind my asking where you're going? I
1: was going to go to the bathroom.
0: This bathroom is for coach passengers only. (laughs) Really? Who said that? Um, Earlier I tried to use the one up there and I was
1: told that You know, coach isn't allowed to use first class, so we have our different areas. I am so sorry that they did that. That's terrible. Thank you for understanding. I'm still going to use the bathroom. Why? I didn't stop you from oh, using that cuz you're in right? first
0: class so you get to do whatever you want to do. Not at all. You get on first, no, you, you get free drinks, no, you get a hot towel,
1: no. you... just cuz
0: I'm sitting up there you're making a generalization about me but I'm not like a first class person. I'm I'm it's coaching. Really I just just that you're not acting coaching. I didn't stop you.
1: You're not acting, you. you're acting
0: you're not coaching. I'm because... coaching.
1: No, but you just think you care. get to walk back here. I'm you got it
0: all wrong. Okay? Oh, I'm sure that I'd You'd be, I do. Up, you'd be some... up in first class. Poor if somebody bought you a ticket, oh, poor you'd be up Mr. there in a second. Mr. Oh, poor little <laughs> coaching girl. She's so, <laughs> so jealous. Because everybody else is more comfortable
1: so than the coaching girl. I just first class. Be somewhere
0: Questions, comments, suggestions, or recommendations, call the Renegade Aviator at 888-366-5256 anytime, and leave us a message.
1: Go to my website, RenegadeAV, the number 8R.com, RenegadeAviator.com. I have links to my shows and to two books that Frank has written, and to a really great video of Frank Murray explaining the A-12 program in detail with pictures and video. Thanks, Chris Johnson, for posting that video, RenegadeAviator.com. Frank, anything else you want to go over with uh, what you were doing with? that, I really need to hook up with you when I'm back in town. We only used the airplane
0: for 29 missions overseas, uh, combat overflights, if you will. Hmm. So we were flying over denied territory, North Vietnam, North Korea. I flew one of the three missions over North Korea after they stole our boat, the Pueblo. Oh, yeah. And that, that was in 68. And Jack Weeks, one of our pilots, flew the first mission over there. And I flew the second, and Jack Layton flew the third. But on this first mission, they did not even see weeks. They did not detect him on their radar. And he sneaked in, got a bunch of pictures, and left. The Chinese told them that if they had been had, (laughs) their radar saw us, but the, the North Koreans didn't see us. So they didn't react. They didn't bring anything to bear. They brought no missiles up or anything like that. Well, on the second mission, they told me at the briefing, since they probably know we're coming back sometime, and if they see you, expect a a heavy response from their missile brigades. Well, that's what they told me in the briefing, so I was kind of cutting washers out of the seat cushion, you know, wondering what they're going to do, but, you know, they never saw me either. (laughs) So, you know, that's okay with me. That's fine. My electronic warfare system, the EWS, did not light up one light, nothing. It was just like I flew over downtown Dallas or something. You know, it was just a quiet mission. The Hmm. camera was running and taking their pictures. I told them to smile, you know, and all of that. But they never saw me either. I don't know about Leighton's mission, the last mission over North Korea. I don't have any personal knowledge of whether they saw him or not. But they didn't see the first two. Wow. And, you know, what I thought in retro, I think they were probably had their radars looking too low on the low horizon. And we're not down at the low horizon. We were 85,000 feet or so, 86,000. On one of my passes, I was 86,000, I think. So, you know, if you're looking below us with the radar, you don't even know we're there.
1: You're not even (laughs)
0: noise. You know, that's it.
1: That's it, ladies and gentlemen. We're out of time, but there's more. Keep listening each week. I'm doing another show with this aviator, Mr. Frank Murray, call sign Dutch 20. There's more amazing stuff coming. This is David Costa. I am the Renegade Aviator. See ya.